Talo for Lava, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, Oo Koroi Hawkins. Coming up. And then we protect rugby players and, you know, star footballers and people like this who are raping. So we protect them, but we don't care about the women in this country. The Fiji government's stance on violence against women is being questioned after conflicting remarks on the floor of parliament. In 2017, more than 200 people were killed in electoral violence, violence that were directly related to elections. There's concern for the safety of voters ahead of the PNG elections, and Australia and New Zealand are being urged to lead by example after the latest climate report. Anything that happens in Australia or New Zealand, the consequences, you know, acutely felt in, in the Pacific. The Fiji Women's Crisis Centre is questioning the government's stance on violence against women after the Attorney General, Aya Syed Kayum, all but defended the participation of convicted rapists in National Rugby Sevens tournaments in the country. Despite widespread condemnation earlier this year, the convicted rapists and Fiji Rugby Sevens stars Aminoni Nasilasila and Nathaneli Lambalamba have been allowed to continue playing in National Sevens tournaments this season. The coordinator of the Fiji Women's Crisis Centre, Shamima Ali, joins me now. Bula, and welcome on Pacific Wave, Shamima. Let's start with the Attorney General's comments in Parliament. What was the context of his statement? Yes, thank you, Karoi. Uh, well, you know, uh, uh, responding to a question and comment by opposition member, Lenora Gerengere-Tambua, regarding uh, the correction service, the Commissioner for Corrections, allowing convicted rapists, Manoni Nasilasila and Nathanieli Lambalamba, uh, to play in the, you know, in the seventh, national sevens tournaments uh, uh, over this season uh, and, and why that was so and that that was not right to do, to do so. So he responded saying that it's the commissioner's discretion and he decides. So therefore, you know, uh, it doesn't matter whether it's rapist or not. He talked about um, recidiv- recidivism rates going down. I don't know what crime he was talking about. Definitely not uh, uh, rape. And you know how does he measure that and things like that. So when he said that, then we sort of were, we were quite shocked because this is the attorney general of the country, the keeper of the law, the, you know, the person who guides us uh, talking like this. And then when we looked at the actual act, it talks about that the corrections commissioner's discretion only kicks in in the last 12 months of the sentence. And both Nasilasila and Lambalamba are way, way, way before that, you know, right at the beginning, you know, so. It was serious crimes. Yes, serious crimes. These are one is in for um, 11 years, Nasilasila, for the rape of a 24 year old young woman. And the other one, Lambalamba, is in for gang rape with assault for 11 years. Yeah. So these are serious, serious crimes, and they must serve it because we have seen the trauma women go through when they have been raped, girls and women. And Fiji also has got, uh, you know, one of the high amongst other Pacific Islands and other places. But we have, uh, you know, we, our domestic violence rates are double the world average of 30%. Uh, we have uh, uh, rape, we have got one of the highest in the world, you know, uh, uh, and so on, sexual assaults, uh, child rape, and so on. So we're not doing well at all in this area. So, you know, it's quite shocking coming from him. And then we also have, you know, there's a lot of confusion about what is the government's real stand? Because after the, initially when they played in the Super Sevens, 
we raised our voices. I raised my voice for the crisis center. Other organizations did, other women did. And then, and then the Nawaka Sevens he played in, and just recently, a week before last, the Mari Sevens, where the, uh, the, the Prime Minister, Frank Benimarama, was also present watching the games and so on. So when we raised our voice, the Minister for Women, Rosie Akbar, strongly also condemned this and said there was no place for this and, and it, it should never happen and so on. And talked about the robust plans that the government has on ending all forms of violence against women and girls. Uh, the Prime Minister on the 8th of March, International Women's Day, made a grand speech about women's strength, that if women are strong, Fiji will be strong. Uh, only then will Fiji be strong. We must, we must lift, uplift women. We will put behind bars anyone who commits violence against women, rapes women and things like that. So he's talking like that. And then yesterday in parliament on the 4th of April, barely two weeks later, three weeks later, we hear the attorney general saying it's the discretion of the commissioner and he's wrong in that also he missed out the other part of it that it's the last 12 months when he can start using his discretion. So this is sending out a very um, wrong message when here we are, we have a very robust national action plan for the prevention of violence against women and girls, where for the first time government, uh, uh, UN women and uh, NGOs like us have come together and been working on it for the last two years, the Prime Minister launched it in 2021, and we're still carrying out consultation it's only the second in the world. Uh, after Australia. So, you know, we're very proud of that. So we're doing all those things. Government has committed to it. And yet the Attorney General is talking like this. And we have two convicted rapists who haven't even served one third of their terms are playing very freely, meeting with people and doing what they love most and, and so on. And there's no condemnation in the, uh, of, of that apart from these voices, the women's voices, some of the women's voices, many women are supporting them on social media, as well as many men, including sporting entities like Kaldan Kamea and Satish Narayan, one of the leading sports commentators in this country, you know, and what if it was a woman that was close to them? So, you know, so uh, this is a very sad day and very sad time for us here in Fiji. The, the the distinction with these two individuals is they they are high profile rugby players, right? So that that's another discussion as to w what rules apply to normal Fijians and uh, or ordinary Fijians, so to speak, and what what rules apply to rugby players in Fiji. Yes, there are different rules because there are other prisoners also. We don't hear about them, uh, you know, playing rugby and so on. Uh, and uh, these two are star players. Uh, so, you know, they, I'm sure there has been exception made out of them. There might be others, but because these are star players, we got to hear about it. Uh, you know, I'm sure there are other players who are allowed to play also, but we don't know them. And they're in the warden's team, for goodness sake, the warden's team. And these are the people who are supposed to be keeping them in check uh, within the prison walls and so on. Yeah. And there's a huge conspiracy of silence around this. We protect our relatives. We protect people known to the survivor, and then we protect rugby players and you know star footballers and people like this who are raping. So we protect them, but we don't care about the women in this country. So you know, very mixed messages are being sent out, and uh, it is not good. It's you know, it's, it's very very sad for the women and girls in Fiji and the men who 
support us in our work. There are many men out there also support us who are totally condemning it. Uh, so yeah, so there we are, Corey. And we are now going to take it further. We are writing to the Commissioner of Corrections. If we don't get an answer from him, we will write to FRU. And if not, then we will go to the World Rugby. Uh, Definitely. I was just about to ask about FRU because th these tournaments we're talking about are the tournaments from which the national Fiji Sevens team was selected to go to these international tournaments overseas. They're not just little tournaments yeah. here and about. No, these, these no. like there was an there was a if they did well and they impressed the coaches, there was a possibility that one or two yeah. of these players yeah. could have ended yeah. up in the national team if it legally there was a way for them to do so. Oh, definitely, because, you know, we read in the media, the coach Gollings, uh, Gollings has his eyes on uh, Nasila Sila. So we, after our outburst, the eyes have moved away from Nasila Sila. Thank goodness for that. Yeah, so, you know, people have, are coming to their senses. In June, Papua New Guineans go to the polls for the five-year national elections. It's always a dramatic time, often violent, and will start and end dozens of political careers. Michael Kabuni is a political scientist at the University of PNG and right now is completing his PhD at the Australian National University. Don Wiseman caught up with him at the weekend to discuss some of the aspects of the poll. There are always remarkable affairs, Papua New Guinea elections, marked by typically a lot of violence, a lot of anger, a lot of people taking part, a lot of movement across the country. Is this election going to be any different? No, I expect everything to happen, you know, the same way. The only concern now is with COVID-19. And I was in Port Mosby when the uh, by-election for Port Mosby Northwest was conducted after Mekere Marotta died. And it was during the height of COVID-19, but people were not following the instructions that were given, social distancing, mask, all of these things. And the concern is that, and that was within the city, in the rural areas, you'd expect things to be much worse than that. So after the 2022 election, after that campaign period and, and voting and everything's done, I opening in, you might see one of the worst COVID-19 scenarios. But apart from that, the level of violence, I don't see how that can be reduced. All the challenges that are associated with tribal fights, like just this week, uh, 19 people were killed up in Tari. So it's looking bad. There is going to be a significant police presence. There has been in all the, the, the recent elections as well. It's never big enough, though, is it? Yeah, well, police presence, police defence and uh, correctional services forces are a big part of PNG elections, at least in the last couple of elections. But violence still continues to get worse. In 2017, more than 200 people were killed in electoral violence, violence that were directly related to elections. So yeah, there are calls for uh, help from Australia, especially Australian federal police, but we, we don't know how that's going to go. In terms of issues, it's a very local affair, isn't it? There's not a lot of national focus in terms of PNG as far as the election goes. It's all about the community. Yeah, political parties have not taken foothold in PNG. The voters don't vote based on, you know, party alliance or party policies. So it's a very local affair, partly because of 
the way subsequent reforms in Papua New Guinea have, have shaped the role of the politician to be. So the politicians are not lawmakers. They are service deliverers. And sometimes, you know, commentators refer to them as walking ATMs. So it's what the voter immediately gets out from the politician that matters, and not necessarily what the politician's position is on issues that affect the nation as all. So you would hear, you know, words like thunder without rain. So what this means is your MP is uh, debating national issues uh, and can be making really good points uh, on the floor of parliament. But if it's not delivering services, it's a thunder, so it's making a lot of noise, but there is no evidence of service delivery or personal benefit. So the voters really don't, you know, focus on national issues. When you talk about providing services, you mean providing benefits for particular people? Both. Uh, Benefit for particular groups, individuals, but also things like health services, education, roads. Yeah. So both both personal benefit and uh, service delivery as in public goods. How would you see this election going? Like I said, I don't expect it to be very different from previous elections. I expect half of the MPs to lose their seats. That usually happens on average. Half of the MPs lose their seats. I expect dominant political parties to come back with the most numbers like PNC, People's Congress Party, led by Peter O'Neill, uh, National Alliance may come back with good numbers. Pangu Party. Some of those parties, though, though Peter O'Neill, he had a, a long time in power and he lost a lot of support. Right. He did, but, you know, other political parties didn't gain much either. Pangu Party's numbers have increased, I think, the last time I checked was 34. But the thing about Pangu Party is that they are made up of MPs who originally didn't contest under Pangu Party. So they joined because of the benefit they can get out from being part of Pangu or being in the government. So the same politicians will switch if Pangu does not have the majority after 2022. So it's really anybody's game. Uh, You cannot rule out PNC, which is about 12 MPs at the moment. So if one of the political parties has a slight advantage, you will see MPs leaving their political parties and moving to the one that has slight advantage just to be on the side of the party that forms the government because the organic law on integrity of political parties and candidates gives priority to party with the largest number to form the government. The Pacific Climate Action Network says the latest climate report has confirmed what regional civil society groups have been saying all along that developed countries aren't taking enough action to tackle the climate crisis. The UN's main climate body, the IPCC, released its Working Group 3 report on the mitigation of climate change on Monday, confirming that current efforts to reduce carbon emissions fall short to stop the world from heating beyond 1.5 degrees. With Pacific nations among the most affected by climate change, any scenario where global warming surpasses the 1.5 degrees threshold will result in devastating consequences for small island regions. The coordinator for the Pacific Climate Action Network, Langisero, says Australia and New Zealand have a key role to play in the fight against climate change. He spoke to RNZ Pacific's regional correspondent, Kelvin Anthony. You know, this has cemented the calls over the years by Pacific civil society around, you know, the urgent need 
to to address the climate crisis and also you know the body of scientific uh, knowledge that has been coming out of the IPCC, especially the the sixth cycle of the IPCC, that is looking at uh, the need to urgently and and rapidly you know cut emissions and the need to get back on track to achieving the 1.5 degrees Paris target because we are far, far away from that. Um, and so we've seen uh, from the reports that, you know, despite, you know, the efforts by governments, by states, and also by uh, the private sector uh, and other key stakeholders, that, you know, this has largely sort of just been piecemeal and, and devastatingly been slow. And so we're leaving the world on track to produce as much coal and, and oil and gas that is still not compatible with the Paris uh, climate goal. What does that mean? You know, if the world continues to, if the world continues its reliance on fossil fuels and developed nations don't commit to reducing the emissions drastically, what does it mean for the Pacific then? For the Pacific, this means that we would see communities go underwater, that we will face disastrous uh, impacts of you know, food and, and water security, and all, um, as well as health security, will largely impact livelihoods, um, the well-being and the security of Pacific Island people. And we do not have the kind of technological uh, resources and finance to be able to fully adapt to, you know, to the impacts that we are facing. Eh? And one of the things that the, the report has uh, underscored is this urgent need to phase out fossil fuel so that we can stave off the, uh, the climate crisis. So what are some of the, I guess, short-term actions that uh, the developed nations, who obviously have been uh, referred to in the report as being the most responsible for the greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere, what are some of the immediate actions that they should be taking to ensure that you know, the world is or remains in, on track to achieve the 1.5 degrees goal? Yeah, of course, you know, the, the science is, is clear with these uh, reports. The objectives, um, sort of the short-term uh, goals, means moving away from fossil fuels to renewables now, not, you know, not any time later. Uh, and so that would mean we're looking at uh, investment, we're looking at the establishment of new coal mines or, or new fossil fuel um, industries uh, or, you know, oil companies companies that are extracting oil, so we need to end uh, any further fossil fuel extraction. We need to move away, um, you know, in a, in a just um, transition to renewable energy. Um, and that means also, you know, looking at investment, both for developed countries, uh, but also financial institutions, the multilateral development banks. So that's one. The other is that we need to invest into environmentally uh, friendly and ecologically and, and financially viable mitigation initiatives. So we need to protect our forest. The, we're looking at mangroves, uh, uh, most of the carbon uh, from, from the atmosphere. We need to uh, invest into much more greener and sustainable uh, cities and, and urban communities. We also need to look at not only the production, but also our consumption as, as part of a global community in ways that we are, you know, demanding more energy demands uh, and where these energy demands are coming from. And, and so it, it's going to require this concerted effort between 
governments and and the private sector and the consumers uh, and other development actors and stakeholders to to take rapid and also radical action and it also requires governments to put that you know political action you know not merely just words and, and policies but you know put that into action and translate those promises not only promises that that was made in paris but also uh, national climate policies and other uh, regulatory frameworks uh, that must be you know uh, put into action so that we are able to drive change and also that uh, the transition to uh, low carbon green uh, just and, and renewable uh, economy what role do you see australia and new zealand play in this obviously pacific islands contribute very little to the greenhouse emissions in the atmosphere but are at the forefront of the climate impacts so what role do you see bigger plays in the region play their role for for australia and new zealand is to cut down their emissions in australia in particular you know that it makes economic sense and it has economic benefit for the australian is detrimental uh to the pacific island people and we are really just one united and connected community here in the pacific anything that happens in australia or new zealand the consequences you know acutely felt in in the pacific that brings us to the end of pacific waves for today remember you can download us free to your device from spotify iheart or apple podcasts and if you're using apple please leave us a rating so others can also find us more than manda